You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Compernal. Population growth, migration trends, and how people choose to retire are all fundamental to understanding future economic growth and the long-run environment for financial institutions. As the baby boomer generation retires and younger generations enter into their prime earning years in home ownership, these shifts will significantly impact economic activity and overall loan demand. On today's episode, we talk with Adriana Reyes, Assistant Professor of Public Policy and Sociology at Cornell University, about the most important demographic trends in the U.S. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Adriana Reyes, Assistant Professor of Public Policy and Sociology at Cornell University. But first, a quick market update. The Fed left interest rates unchanged at its meeting last week, as expected. Changes to the policy statement effectively ruled out the possibility of a future hike this year. But the Fed is still emphatic that it needs to see more improvement in inflation data before it's comfortable cutting interest rates. Chair Powell spoke to a national audience last weekend on 60 Minutes about the Fed's resolve to not rest until inflation was completely under control. Markets have moved away from expectations for a March cut, but are still expecting more policy easing by the end of the year than the Fed has communicated. Treasury's latest quarterly refunding announcement last week showed increases in coupon auction sizes in line with the consensus expectations. The market reaction was fairly muted, and the first coupon auctions this week have gone relatively well. The January employment report showed much broader strength than expected. Payrolls grew 353,000, and the unemployment rate was unchanged at 3.7%. January seasonal adjustments can always be tricky and household employment wasn't as strong as the establishment survey, but for now, the hard data still point to economic strength continuing into 2024. The report spurred a nearly 25 basis point sell-off across the Treasury curve over the next two days, pushing yields up to some of their highest since the December FOMC meeting. Policy-sensitive yields have moved closer to what we believe to be fair value based on Fed policy expectations but we still think the long end of the curve is slightly oversold. We expect there will be a significant bull steepening once the Fed starts cutting rates. Until then, yields should fluctuate within the ranges we've seen since the beginning of the year. New York Community Bank Corps spooked markets with reports of significant losses from exposure to commercial real estate. It's still too early to know if it's a sign of wider banking sector vulnerabilities, but the news has worried investors who feel regional bank issues may not entirely be in the past. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our interview with Adriana Reyes. Our guest today is Adriana Reyes, Assistant Professor of Public Policy and Sociology at Cornell University. Adriana, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Well. Our topic today is demographics in the U.S., and I think it's important to point out how essential this topic is for banks and financial institutions writ large, because after all, population growth, where people live, and how they live are at the core of understanding the longer-term forces behind things like future economic growth, the housing market, and loan demand. So I want to start by looking at the 30,000-foot view of demographics in the U.S., Adriana, before the pandemic, what were the longer-term trends in the U.S. when it comes to population growth, retirement age, and immigration? So the population is aging, and this has been happening for a while now as we're having fewer births and more deaths as there's more older people in the United States. 
And then the third force here is immigration. And we've also seen a slowdown in immigration from our historic highs. The population is still growing, but it's growing at a slower rate than it was previously. Um, and immigration is a big part of what keeps the population growing. Depending on what those levels are, we may, you know, we're going to see a slower or faster rise in the population growth as we aren't seeing more births. Uh, Historically, uh, the retirement age has actually been on the decline for almost a century before it stabilized in about the 80s. And so then it began to rise back very slowly in, in the 90s, though it's still lower than it was even in the 1960s. Right now we have an average retirement age of around 65 for men and 62 for women. And this is actually you know, lower than it was in the 60s, but higher than it was in the 80s. From my perspective as a, as a macroeconomist, there were two really big demographic abrupt changes uh, during the pandemic that really uh, people focused on when it came to the labor market. And so the first is um, a huge uh, surge in domestic migration. So people were moving to areas where there were lower tax burdens, warmer weather, especially if they could work remotely. And then the second big trend was that we saw a lot of people retiring earlier than we would have otherwise expected for whatever reason it could have been fear of covid it could have been um, that their house values were now higher and so they could sell it off and retire earlier that kind of quick change during the pandemic do you feel that those trends are temporary or permanent or is it still too early to tell so let me take the retirement one first. And I want to say that I think that was a totally temporary blip. And I think actually in some further analysis that's been done as we've gotten a little further away from the initial pandemic is that, yes, there was this large initial spike. And I think we saw a lot of headlines about this earlier retirement for older workers. But further analysis on this has actually found that the pandemics had little impact on retirement and Social Security claiming um, as many older adults have actually returned to work, you know, after the vaccines came out and after things kind of settled down a little bit more. So I think the retirement trends were totally temporary, and I don't think that's going to be a long-term trend of back to earlier retirement. In terms of the moves, you're right, you know, we saw that the South was like an overall gain in, in net migration during the, the pandemic and even in some of the years following. And, you know, the, the idea of remote work and lower cost of living areas. I think it's unclear right now whether or not that's going to be a long-term trend because I think eventually we may also start seeing, you know, and picking this long-term view, migration patterns might also start changing as a consequence of climate change, the ideas of coastal flooding and hurricane risk and extreme weather patterns. And so some of the areas that have warmer weather and these other things might also end up having higher risk. So we might eventually see some shifts where people are moving because of the climate. And so I think right now it's it's pretty hard to tell, I think, about the domestic migration and whether or not these moves will be temporary or not. So I think um, maybe as important as the age of people retiring is really the, the kind of way that they're retiring. When it comes to retirement trends for the baby boomer generation, and this I find is an ill-defined, uh, you know, age group. So for the sake of this conversation, let's say it's people born between 1946 and 1964. Compared to previous generations, are baby boomers retiring any differently than the generation before them in terms of aging in their homes instead of going to assisted living facilities, moving in with their children more? Are they moving across the country uh, any more than the older generation? What can we say about how they are retiring? In terms of how they're retiring, you know, spatially, 
we do know that there is a strong desire and this has come out in many different like sentiment polls they want to age in place you know many don't want to stay in the same place as long as they can and this has been a trend for a while now that you know like the rates of nursing homes have been decreasing and some of this is again there's a strong desire people want to stay in their home as long as possible and then this is also kind of coupled with states and there is policies encouraging older adults to get care in the home because it's less expensive and costs less for Medicaid. And so there is, you know, I think a two forces there in terms of people wanting to stay in their home. Although I think the care angle is later in life than at retirement. Unmarried women are more likely to live with their children than previous recent generations. You are seeing some different trends with where people are going. I think there is a desire for some to be close to family. Um, and so we do see some changes in that. But I think in terms of people who are actually moving locations, it's actually a really small share. And I think staying and aging in place is really the modal response that people are having in terms of retirement. So a big thing right now, I think, for uh, millennials or Generation Z is uh, the idea of housing affordability. And so for a number of reasons right now, house prices are high and also um inventories of, of homes for sale are really at record lows. There are a lot of forces going into that, but I'm curious, is any of that tied to, again, how baby boomers are kind of aging? And by that, I mean, are they passing down their homes to their children uh, in any kind of higher frequency instead of selling it to the market? And of course, the best way to make a home affordable as a first-time home buyer is to kind of inherit it from your parents. And so is that going on uh, at any different frequency than we saw in, in, in older generations? So I think, you know, older adults generally prefer not to spend their home equity um, and they do want to pass it down as an asset. And I think that is a, I don't think that's happening more frequently than in the past. I think that is a pretty long running trend that has been common in economics findings. Maybe one of the differences is that older adults that are homeowners are often living longer. And so it's taking longer for them to pass down that home because they're generally, you know, passing it down once they pass away and that is happening at older ages. And so then I think that can have like a cascade to the future generations is that it's happening to young adults at slightly older ages when maybe they've already bought or would have already preferred to have bought a home. And I think also part of why they wait to pass it down is both this desire to have to leave it to the next generation, but also I think there's some tax advantages, you know, I'm not a tax expert, but from what I know that there are some tax advantages to passing down a home rather than selling it and passing down the profits. I want to touch then on, on something you mentioned, um, which is people living longer. Um, and of course, this is a, a kind of good problem to have. As life expectancy has gone up for certain groups, of course, that means more costs associated with this period of your life where you are not um, earning wages. So do we know much about how the costs for end-of-life care are running up against how people have financially prepared for retirement? Because a question that I think I often get is how this big cohort, the baby boomer generation, is going to weigh on, let's say, the federal budget because um, they, of course, are going to draw down Social Security um, a lot more than the workers uh, that are, let's say, putting in money when they're working right now. Are people generally prepared for retirement financially um, given these kind of end-of-life costs? I would say yes and no. I think the baby boomers are you know, we have increasing income inequality in the United States and the boom boomers have more inequality as they're reaching old age than previous generation, which means that 
although you know maybe the more advantaged have higher levels of net worth than earlier generation the poorest are worse off than previous generations and so i think we see some bifurcation here where some people probably do have the assets needed to cover these high end of life costs where others don't and i mean i think you know as you alluded to long term care is expensive and you know for instance a nursing home the median cost is 108,000 a year so you know how many people really have that much saved up but you know, many people end up trying to spend down to qualify for Medicaid because Medicaid is actually the largest payer of long-term care costs in the United States, which actually means it's on state budgets. And that's kind of leads to a lot of state differences in how, uh, in trying to like reduce those Medicaid costs and those long-term care costs. And as I mentioned, kind of alluded to earlier, trying to get people to get care in their home, at, which is less costly than living in a nursing home, um, which is gonna be more costly. A lot of the conversation so far has has been about um, how people are retiring, the baby boomers, but I want to then move on to uh, the younger generations, how they are entering this next stage um, of adulthood, whether it's home ownership or, or their primary earning years. And, and so a question that, that I have that I think you see, especially in a lot of European countries, is uh, lower birth rates. And you mentioned earlier how immigration is the only thing keeping population growth positive in the U.S., why do you think we are having fewer children? Um, and do you think that will change? So I think part of the story is that women are delaying childbirth. You know, we have women are starting to have their first births at older ages, which tends to mean that they're, they're having fewer children. This isn't the whole story. There is still also, you know, why are they having fewer children and also more childlessness? I think some of those reasons are a little bit more speculative at this point. But, you know, some of the signs point to parenthood and being a and raising children is very costly, both in terms of money, we have our high cost of childcare in the United States, and in terms of time, there's these trends with intensive parenting that may lead people to you know, wanna have fewer kids because of the time and cost investment, or decide they don't wanna have children. Um, and so I think that's what's kind of leading to this lower fertility. And from everything that I've read, this is unlikely to change. You know, if we look to other countries that have experienced this and, and thinking about the current trends, uh, I don't see it changing anytime soon. Yeah, I, I wonder if you have an idea of, of how much of it is, um, let's say, cultural or structural instead of policy related. Um, and again, this is just a surface level understanding of it. But I think a lot of um, countries in Europe that have pro-natalist policies that, that alleviate the costs of childcare or of, of raising children, um, they still have low birth rates. And of course, it's, it's up to um, you know, the social scientists to figure out if the birth rates would be even lower without those policies. Um, but is this something that you feel policy could fundamentally change or is it really just other structural forces? This is a great question. I want to think that we should have some of the, had many more supports would help, but you're right. In looking to other countries, they have these policies, they still see a declining birth rate. And even studies that have tried to compare across states in the U.S. have also seen that there's a pretty small impact that many of these policies have. You know, something like it explains like less than 10% of decline in fertility that we've seen. So I don't think that that is, there's some easy policy lever we can switch and change this. I think it has to do with both this like cultural changes and um, as well as these structural factors that are just a little bit more complicated and aren't things that we can just easily set a policy to kind of change. So that's why I think it's unlikely to change. This just seems to be a larger trend. 
The other big force uh, that you mentioned in terms of keeping our population growth positive in the U.S. Um, is immigration. And um, I would think that this is much more policy sensitive than um, the, the, the birth rate of, of those in the United States. Um, so I'm curious if you have um, a, an understanding of how much uh, immigration rates are related to policies between uh, different Congresses, uh, presidential administrations. Is there really an underlying trend that there that, um, you know, kind of survives policy shifts, or uh, is it really dependent on the legislation that is going on uh, in whatever time span we're talking about? I think there's some larger trends that maybe are not as sensitive to policy. You know, we do see a slowing migration, and that's been happening for a while, and that's happened across administrations. I think, of course, the pandemic was a exception where we had even lower rates of migration than would have been expected. But I think that's starting to change a little bit. And to say that, you know, I think historically these trends have kind of gone across different, you know, political regimes and Congresses. But that's not to say that there aren't couldn't be future policies that either slow it down even further or increase, make it easier. You know, there of course are always ways to change it and, and could help or could push it one way or the other in terms of higher or lower than, you know, what it may be without with the absence of any policy. Um, we also, I think, are seeing some differences in the ways that people are trying to migrate with this, you know, this increase in like people trying to file for asylum. And I think that is these asylum seekers, I think, are especially sensitive maybe to policy changes as compared to other migration flows. So the younger generations, which again, I'll, I'll kind of just broadly define as Generation Z and Millennials, um, how are they uh, entering this next stage of adulthood compared with previous generations when it comes to things like owning a home versus renting or living in the cities versus suburbs, uh, living with their parents longer? Because I know you mentioned the kind of financial pressures that can keep retirees living with their kids. And I'm sure that factors into a lot of how Millennials and Gen Z are entering the next stage of life um, in terms of where they live and, and how they're doing it. There has been, you know, for millennials, there's been a lot of research that's kind of shown that the financially, it's been more difficult. There's been less access to good jobs. Even people who do go to college are graduating with lots of college, uh, with lots of student loan debt. And so all of these factors have kind of slowed down. And I think some of these historical milestones of home owning and, and things that we think of as part of their, you know, life course stages in terms of becoming an adult. And but, but I think research has shown that although, you know, millennial homeownership remains lower than those of previous generations at, at similar ages, the gaps are starting to close. And I think at least among the millennials now, we are seeing some continued homeownership gains. And so I do think we are seeing some trends that they are starting to sort of catch up a little bit with some of this um, homeownership, although it's still not um, as high. I think uh, also this idea of like living in the suburbs and living in the cities, I think it, they, we are seeing that millennials are willing to move to the suburbs to become homeowners, just like previous generations. Uh, and then the even younger generations that are coming up are still, you know, living in the cities. And so we do see a pretty, you know, younger populations in the cities. And as I, you know, mentioned earlier too, that one of the ways that the younger generations are coping with these more difficulties is also living with their parents, I think, longer than in previous generations, which has been an ongoing trend for quite a while now. 
I want to end with a, a pretty open-ended question for you, um, which is, you know, when you look into long-term demographic trends over the next decade, two decades, uh, whatever time period you, you would like to focus on, what do you think is the critical question um, that very few people kind of seem to appreciate? So what what is a, an under, under-focused topic when it comes to the big picture demographics of the U.S. that you think will really be the kind of key driver of a lot of the topics we've talked about today? I think a key driver is population aging. The population is getting older, which, you know, as you talked about earlier, means there's going to be more older adults who need caregiving and all these services. And so this is going to be something we need to think about both in terms of the financial responsibility of state and federal governments, but also it's going to put a large pressure on families who are smaller. So, you know, as we see fewer births, this also means fewer children to be providing some of this care. And so I think thinking about the spillover effects of this population aging in terms of both government, but also family, strong families is going to be important in thinking about what are the policies we need to support these older adults and the care needs that they have. Adriana Reyes, thanks for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me. That was Adriana Reyes, Assistant Professor of Public Policy and Sociology at Cornell University. A key takeaway I have from that conversation is the extent to which financial circumstances will be a key determinant for the way that older generations retire and younger generations choose to live. The flexibility that retirees have to age in place versus with their children will depend on whether their financial planning lines up with the rising costs of living longer. For younger generations, the issue of affordability is influencing whether to live in cities versus suburbs and attitudes about having children. The January CPI report next Tuesday kicks off a busy week for economic data. Core CPI is expected to have increased 0.3% from December for a 3.7% year-on-year gain. The release will certainly move markets, but because the Fed targets PCE inflation and has more or less decided inflation is on a solidly downward path, The impacts on the Fed policy trajectory could be surprisingly limited. Next Thursday, the January retail sales report will be the first important first quarter data for household spending. The following week, we'll see the FOMC minutes from the Fed's January meeting. A handful of Fed speakers are also on the calendar the next couple weeks, with a March rate cut almost certainly off the table. We'll be looking for any comments from Fed officials on possible plans for changes to the Fed's balance sheet. We think there's too much data left to come out before the May meeting for Fed officials to give any sort of guidance on a potential rate cut at the May meeting. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Compernal, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions or comments. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.